Hey, I'm Amory Robertson. I'm your host for Read Write Geek, a podcast for writers, readers, and makers of all kinds. Welcome aboard. Episode 4 Chapter 6 well, Isn't that something? Polly thunders as we depart intake roughly two hours later. Who would have guessed our two newest residents would be so well acquainted? Certainly not me, I say dryly. Arden and Graham are walking together ahead of us, deep in conversation. Neither has offered any clarification on how they know each other. They've mentioned only that they met years ago out there and that it's been a long time. What's this now, jealousy? You can't be the man's center of attention all the time. Polly attempts to whisper, which is impossible for him, and comes off more like a painfully loud hiss. I understand that he's trying to tease me about my relationship with Graham, but I'm not finding anything terribly funny at the moment, so I give Polly a mock angry frown to hide my confusion. He buys it and laughs heartily. We're going to tour the warehousing setup and grab some brew afterwards, Arden says, turning toward us and clearly speaking for himself and Graham. Everybody coming? Oh, oh, not me, I say, taking the first opportunity at escape. I have a few things I need to finish up back at our pod. I'll see everybody later. Neither Arden nor Graham object, and I find myself jettisoned from the main group like junk from a skiff. Polly, at least, turns and waves goodbye to me as the rest of them disappear across the square. I don't want to be in the tight quarters of my pod now, though. I want to be somewhere empty where I can gather my thoughts. It's not normal practice for after hours here, but I head over to the pit anyway. I have a good stash of parts from this morning that I can haul over to my project space to play with, and it'll only take an hour or so, it'll be nice and quiet, and I'll stay on my headset in case anyone needs me. I'm hoping the hands-on work will keep my brain occupied. But after I get down into the pit and into the quiet, it's only a matter of minutes before it, my brain grabs onto the specter of Arden and Graham shaking hands like old friends and begins running wild. I wonder if they were the kind of friends who got personal, who talked about the intimate details of their past. I wonder if Arden ever told his friend Graham about the girl who got sick, who he left in the grip of a pandemic. I wonder if he told Graham anything specific about that girl, and whether Graham, arriving on Iona, meeting a girl of the right age from home world and finding her name perhaps familiar, might somehow put two and two together. Arden and I knew... After the revelation of the company's involvement in the death and deception of its own people on Homeworld, that we had to come up with a plan, not only to try to save ourselves, but everyone left in our city. We can't reverse what's already in play, but maybe we can combat the effects somehow and keep it in check, Arden said as he poured himself yet another cup of strong black coffee. He still looked tense, but significantly less defeated than he had over the last few weeks. You do seem to have an immunity to this virus, I said. You have no specific antibodies to it that would suggest an exposure-based immunity, but it doesn't affect you. Could it have something to do with your upbringing on Thane? There are so few Thanes here, we rarely encounter your people this far from home. So maybe I should start researching that angle. Meanwhile, you have constant contact with the sick every day, so now you could ask for payment in the form of maybe information to sort out who's been exposed to what. Perhaps there are patterns here that aren't immediately obvious to us. Well, that might help us figure out who's most at risk, he said, and assess any factors that differentiate those who survive from those who don't. He winced briefly at his own clinical language, but continued the line of thought. 
If we can understand those factors better, we may be able to keep some people healthy and reduce the severity of the waning in those who contract it. Let's get started then, I said. We stood up and embraced tightly. Arden whispered, thank you, I love you, into my ear before pulling on his jacket and heading out on his daily rounds. I tucked myself into a comfortable corner of our room with my holo tablet and immersed myself in the definitive texts on the history of Thane, searching for any information that might help us turn things around. We continued this way for a week. We compiled extensive notes on our research and reviewed them together every night. The waning was quickly reaching a type of crescendo. Fewer new outbreaks were reported, but those that occurred were much more severe and more often culminated in death. We also saw an uptick in reinfections of survivors. Thus, despite the reduction in new cases, the number of deaths continued to increase. As we discussed it, Arden looked grim. I was afraid of this. Maybe the reinfections and the new infections are coming from the same place. I examined my spreadsheets for data for the hundredth time that night and shook my head. How could that happen? These people weren't for the most part sharing space. There aren't any consistencies as far as contact, behaviors. Arden interrupted with a wave of his hand. That's what you look for in a normal situation, but this isn't a normal situation. You haven't been outside as much as I have. It seems to me that the air has changed. I think that has something to do with it. The air? What are you talking about? Then I remembered. It smells different. The company's done something. I think they've changed what they're pumping into the air, Arden speculated. It may be that they've mutated the virus and disease transmission is now uneven because the population has changed. Someone who had the original virus maybe has a bit of immunity, so the new variation doesn't have as much impact. But someone else who has been virus-free so far has no immunity and gets hit hard. What we need to figure out is how to prevent infections altogether, I sighed. What else could we do to stop them? Arden's expression became guarded and dark. He paused thoughtfully before he spoke. The only way might be to break into master control and shut down all the aerators, he said. I know enough about how they work to do it. I was shocked. Arden, be serious. We can't do that. There are a million fail-safes connected to those devices and cameras all over master control. We'd be marked immediately, and who knows what they would do to us or to the remaining people of this world if that secret got out. What if it's the only way? It can't be the only way, I said resolutely. It can't be. It's too extreme. We have to be prepared for it, if it is, Arden said, his tone measured. It's something we need to consider. I won't lose you, I said simply, and wrapped my arms around him tighter. I'm not going to let you do anything so stupid. We both pretended to fall asleep, but we were disquieted and it showed. After an hour or so, Arden got up and went out into the garden to stare at the stars, while I stared at the ceiling and tried to combat overwhelming feelings of hopelessness and anxiety. I could see how the mere presence of the disease was changing our planetary culture, from one of sociability and sharing to caution and isolation. People still cared about one another, but openness was replaced by persistent anxiety and an instinct for self-preservation. That was, in its own way, motivation for me. I didn't like what we had become. I wanted the old home world back. So Arden and I kept trying, but it was like trying to spear blackfish in the dark until I noticed the repeated mention of someone unfamiliar to me in the Thamish tomes. Who is this character Barnaft? I asked Arden a few days later. Who? Barnaft. Was she a physician or a ritual healer or something? It always seems like your medical dilemmas wind up with her sorting everything out. I searched briefly and then found a passage in the historical anthology I had been reviewing, and read it aloud. 
Much pain was our daughter in, and afflicted with hives and blood marks. But Barnath's tea eased her pain, and the tincture scooed. But Barnath's, but Barnath's tea, but Barnath's tea eased her pain, and the tincture scooth. But Barnath's tea eased her pain, and the tincture soothed her skin. After three days, the marks were gone, and she was fully recovered. We owe her life to the blessing of Barnaft. Arden looked puzzled. Let me see, he said, coming around to my side of the table and studying the holotext floating in front of me in midair. His brow furrowed for a few seconds, and then he laughed. Oh, I understand. It's spelled B-A-R-N-A-P-H-T, but it's not pronounced the way you're saying it, Barnaft. It's pronounced Birnopt. It's not a person. It's a plant. We use it for everything on Thane. How strange. I've never heard of it. Is it common? Yes, I'm surprised you don't know it. Does it not grow here at all? That's curious. If it grows here, we must have a different name for it, I said. Some pictures would help. Why is it so popular? Well, it grows easily and quickly, so there's a lot of it on Thane, but the primary reason is that it works. You're kidding. This isn't just a collection of made-up stories attributing all kinds of healing to a magical bush? (laughs) No, not at all. It's been carefully studied, and a lot of our medicines are based on it. It has some really useful properties. Anti-nausea, pain-killing, anti-inflammation, antiviral. As the words came out of his mouth, Arden's eyes grew wide. Oh my god, do you think that might be it? I can't say until two minutes ago. I didn't even know what it was, I said. It would be good to read something a little more scientific about it, even though these Thanish anthologies are quite poetic. Roddy may have had some texts on extra-world plant life. I'll go check out his personal quarters. Let me go, Arden suggested. I'm familiar with the plant's taxonomy, so I'll know what to look for. I agreed, but felt a wave of disappointment wash over me as Arden left our room to head over to our poor dead podmate's quarters. I was tired of hiding inside, but the threat of infection was still very real, and we didn't understand the mechanism entirely. Arden returned to our room half an hour later. Moving slowly and deliberately, he drew the curtains across our picture window and turned to face me. Only then did his face break into an ecstatic expression. Did you find some information? Oh, yes, that's already been sent to your holo tablet, but see what else I found, he said, holding out his closed hand. He rotated it upward and opened his fingers slowly. I saw in his palm a collection of tiny black specks, almost like bits of grit or seeds? Beaternopped seeds? I made certain to get the pronunciation right. Arden's smile spread even wider. Beaternopped seeds he confirmed. Along with the seeds, Arden had also found some distilling and infusing equipment. I think he was going to try to make our traditional brew. I remember him asking me about it one night, he speculated. He has Thane's most revered and useful medicinal herb, and he was planning to make beer out of it? Good God. I rolled my eyes, but Arden was beaming. This is all extremely useful stuff, he said. There's a full growing setup in his quarters, and some seedlings, too. He had this all automated. It's like a little horticulture lab in there, and it just kept doing its thing, even after he passed away. There's even a significant store of dried leaves ready for use. Arden placed the pile of tiny seeds in the center of our table. If this is the answer, we'll know soon enough. I'll start working with the plants we have and cultivating the seeds. You keep researching and try to figure out what kind of delivery agents might work. There's a lot of public information on compounding beer nopt for medicinal uses. Once we have something, we can test it out on a small scale. I immediately understood where he was going with this, and I grasped his arm in excitement. 
If it works, you can hand it out on your rounds. Nobody ever has to know it was us. The company will never know it was us. That was all the encouragement either of us needed. Are you there, Faith? Graham's voice comes through my headset, startling me out of my memories. I inhale sharply and get myself together and say into the mic, Uh, yes, uh, what's up? My brain is spinning all kinds of stories about tales told and recriminations offered, so I'm surprised when he simply says, I miss you. Meet me in the star parlor in 30? My imagination, still in overdrive, causes me to blurt out, Just you and me? And in response, he laughs softly and says, Of course. And some food and some better quality brew, if you don't mind. I don't mind, I say, and sigh in relief. I'll be there. The headset crackles off, and I look down at myself. My nails are caked in parts grease, and I haven't brushed my hair since noon. If I'm going to drag Graham into my deep past tonight, and that may be what I have to do, it might be nice to give him the courtesy of looking a little less of a wreck. Home to wash, then. I dump my parts back into the stash bin and climb out of the pit. I take advantage of the scooter parked outside the control room and whisk across the sand to my pod. The common room is buzzing with conversation, and I'm somewhat relieved that Arden is nowhere to be seen. I hear Wenda and Hen busy in the kitchen preparing dinner, so I pop my head through the doorway to let Wenda know I'll be having dinner elsewhere. She's in mid-instruction, trying to help Hen cut root vegetables for a casserole, but when she sees me, she waves, smiles, points to her headset, and gives a thumbs up. She knows already. Apparently, Graham, always efficient and considerate, got word to her that she'd have one less for dinner. I go to my quarters to grab a couple of towels and some soap, then change into my robe and walk down the hallway to one of our shared shower rooms. Inside, Holly occupies one of the five stalls, washing her hair with an intensely flowery-smelling concoction. She peeks around the curtain to see who has come in, then smiles in greeting and waves one bubble-laden hand in my direction. Doesn't this smell divine? She chirps. It's sweet apple blossom from home world. It's supposed to make everyone fall in love with you as soon as they smell it. Any target in particular? I ask, already calculating the answer. She blushes fiercely but shakes her head and says, Oh, no, no, no one, nothing like that, and retreats behind the plastic curtain. Just trying something new in case I, uh, just, just trying something new. I laugh, remembering my own awkwardness at 16. <laughs> Don't worry, Holly, you're fine, I say. You're fine. You'll be fine. Don't worry, sweetheart, you're going to be fine. The echo of Arden's long-ago voice in my head makes me cringe. As I step into the shower and feel the hot water begin melting the day's grit from my body, I'm pulled back again to the most terrifying time of my life, and it all centered around his voice, telling me I would be fine. Faith, can you hear me? Wake up. Don't worry, sweetheart. You're going to be fine. His voice echoed and rang as if coming through a long tunnel far away. We both seemed to be lost in the dark. I imagined myself walking toward him, toward the sound of his voice, but each step I took made the tunnel grow longer. This must be a dream, I thought, struggling toward some coherence. Slowly, consciousness came to me. I wasn't in a tunnel. I was in a bed. Our bed. And I was dying. Faith, open your eyes. Let's get you sitting up and get some of this soup into you. I felt his hands on me, pulling at me as gently as possible. And then the pain hit me. Everything hurt, violently, bone deep. I heard myself in that long tunnel too as I screamed in agony. Definitely not a dream. I'm sorry, honey. Arden's voice pushed its way through my pain. I know it hurts. Sit up. 
I remembered then. Two nights before, I sat across from Arden at our little table by the window. We were making progress. Our beer nopped experiment was working. People were getting better. Things were looking up. I felt lightheaded and warm, which I put down to excitement. But Arden's face went ashen as he stared at the table in front of me. I looked down to see spatters of bright red blood. I gasped, dragged myself up, and stumbled across the room to look at myself in the mirror. A bloated, rash-covered face with a vicious nosebleed looked back. I had the earliest signs of the waning in its most virulent form, the form we had yet to stop. Sit up, Faith. Eat some of this green slop. It will help. Arden propped up a dozen pillows behind my back and tried to position me against them in a way that would not contribute to the horrific pain, but it wasn't possible. It hurt even to breathe. He held a spoon to my lips, and I saw it was brimming with the slightly oily green concoction we had created to fight off the virus decimating our world. But I turned my head away. He paused, waited, tried again. I finally accepted a mouthful of the warm soup. Swallowing hurt so much I began to cry. I know, honey, I know. But you have to do this if you're going to get better. Get better. I shook my head. I wasn't going to get better, and I knew it. He pushed another spoonful into my mouth. I managed to swallow it and wailed in agony. When I looked at Arden, tears were running down his face as well. It hurts so much, I rasped out. I can't do this. His lips drew taut, but he said nothing and instead proffered another spoonful of soup. I accepted it and swallowed silently. We continued this way for almost two hours until the bowl was finally empty. I made some adjustments to the formula, he said. Hopefully, it will at least help ease the pain. He carefully pulled me into his arms, cradling me against his chest, and began to sing a thanish nursery rhyme he had taught me long ago, rocking me as he sang. Nothing smaller than these seeds, nothing larger than these stars, nothing brighter than these dreams that will keep you in my heart. I felt myself falling back into the long tunnel again as the sound of the nursery rhyme surrounded me. As Arden slowly pulled away the pillows and eased me back down onto the bed, both my pain and my awareness of everything around me faded to black. I couldn't say how much time passed before I heard his voice again. You're going to be all right, Faith, he said. And then more darkness before I heard. You're going to be fine. Always remember how much I love you. Every time I heard his voice, I thought it would be the last time, and I was grateful that I was going to die loved and mourned. But much to my surprise, I woke up a few days later. The pain was gone, the fever was gone, and the rash had abated. Not only had I survived, everyone left on Homeworld was recovering. The waning had ended. And Arden had disappeared. I sigh as I step out of the shower, buffing myself with the rough towel and pulling on my robe. I sincerely hope tonight's dinner doesn't turn into a table for three. I want to find out how much Graham might already know about my time with Arden and fill in any blanks that are left in his mind, but what I truly want is to just be alone with him and pretend like the last two days didn't happen. That means I need to keep Arden and our past out of my head. Graham has already set up the star parlor by the time I arrive. The pillows are piled high around a beautiful wooden tray set with cheeses, breads, sweets, carefully cut fresh fruit, slices of roast fowl, preserved lemons, and bottles of crystal clear purified water and honey golden brew. In the center is a small metal vase holding one perfect pale peach rose. 
How did you do this? I ask, settling in next to him and staring at the spread in amazement. I pick up the rose and sniff it. Its perfume is sweet and subtle and matches exactly the fragrance of the soap I just used. It's my secret, he says, smiling at me. He wraps his arms around me and kisses me. A pleasant, tingling warmth spreads through me, and I decide to enjoy the moment for at least a little while before we move into more serious conversation. We settle into the pillows with glasses of brew and watch in silence as darkness falls on Iona and the stars slowly reveal their positions in the sky. I'm the first to speak, but not about what I really want to talk about. How was the warehousing tour? I ask. Polly seems really excited about it. It was fine, Graham says, in what sounds initially like a guarded tone. It it was good, actually. I think it's going to be an excellent income stream for Iona. A pause. Why didn't you come along? I think about what I want to say and decide to be mostly honest. I just wanted some time to myself, I explain. I didn't go back to the pod. I went to the pit instead. I had started a few things there this morning that I wanted to finish up, and it's quiet in there, so... Graham's expression is empathetic. I'll take it. Well, I'm glad you felt like spending time with me tonight, he says. It's only been a couple of days since we started this, and I didn't want to come off as clingy or imposing on your time. But I wanted to see you, and when you begged off this afternoon, I was concerned. He takes a long sip of brew and doesn't meet my eyes. I prod him, trying to sound casual despite my heart flip-flopping in my chest. Concerned about what? That maybe you had changed your mind. You looked a bit surprised when you walked into the meeting and saw me. I should have told you about that in advance. Oh. Well, I was surprised, but in a good way, I say. I'm glad to be working with you. I'm relieved to hear it, he responds, and his voice and body began to release tension. He snuggles me closer. I can understand wanting some quiet time after the last few days you've had. Arden tells me he's in your pod. Yes, he is. You got him for intake. He's in your pod. You're squiring him around Iona, trying to keep him out of trouble, and now you're flex on his warehousing team? I have no idea where this might be going, so I keep it simple. Yeah, that sums it up. To my surprise, Graham laughs aloud. <laughs> no wonder you needed some time to yourself. That's a lot of Arden. I am stunned into silence. Graham doesn't seem to notice and continues. I've known Arden for a long time, although it's been years since we were last in touch, he says. He can be a real handful. How so? Graham laughs again, heartily. I'll tell you some stories one of these days about our time together, but you've only just met him, and I don't want to influence your opinion of him unduly, he explains. Keep in mind that as the new guy, though, he's probably on his best behavior, so what you're seeing may not ultimately be what you get. I'm flabbergasted. It's clear that the Arden I know and the Arden Graham knows appear to have almost diametrically opposed personalities. It's also clear that Arden has told him nothing of me or of our time on Homeworld together. As far as Graham knows, Arden and I are strangers crossing paths for the first time. I try to approach the subject gingerly, carving a fine line between telling the truth and telling everything. Actually, I did meet Arden a long time ago on Homeworld, I say as nonchalantly as possible. We were both in Key City. He was our transport engineer, and I was working in residential services. What a coincidence, Graham says, apparently accepting what I've said at face value. When we met, he wasn't too far off a stint on Homeworld. That must have been about the time you knew him. He wasn't a wild child in those days? Not at all. 
then he really did change. By the time we crossed paths, he habitually went to the extreme in everything he did. There was no risk he wasn't happy to take. He threw himself into the most intense and dangerous assignments without a second thought. He flew the fastest ship, drank the strongest brew, had and then discarded the most beautiful lovers. He got into arguments with his supervisors and fist fights with his friends. It was almost like he was a man possessed. And yet the two of you become friends. What does this say about you, Governor Thorne? <laughs> I admit I was a wild one myself in those days. But there was another side to Arden that he didn't show often, and I felt a certain resonance with it. I think he went through something heartbreaking and difficult before we met, and all the crazy behavior was an attempt to burn those memories out of his brain. I'd gone through a similar phase a few years before, and we understood each other. That's why we got close. Something heartbreaking and difficult, I think to myself. Like running away and leaving the woman you claim to love in the grip of a fatal disease? But this is not the time for those questions, and Graham isn't the person who needs to answer them. I find I don't want to talk about Arden anymore. So you say you went through a phase like that. Was heartbreak a part of the equation for you, too? I'm truly interested and curious, but at the same time, my question is part strategy. I'm banking on Graham feeling like he'll need to tell me about this aspect of his life at some point, but not wanting to pursue it tonight. My gamble pays off. He looks thoughtful for a moment, then says, One day I will explain. But let's not talk about that tonight. I smile up at him. That's fine, I say. We have plenty of time. Graham doesn't bring Arden up again, and thankfully Arden's voice stays out of my head. We spend a pleasant evening talking about other things, eating, drinking, and looking at the stars together. It feels natural and comfortable and right, and when we finally take the lift down from the star parlor and stand outside his pod preparing to go our separate ways for the evening, I mean it when I tell Graham, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here too, he responds. One day, you'll have to tell me how you got here. I try to smile instead of grimacing as we kiss goodnight. When I at last came to in our big bed on Homeworld, I had no idea how long I'd been unconscious or even what day it was. I knew only that I was alive and all traces of the waning had left me. I called out Arden's name, but heard no reply. Day passed into night and there was still no sign of him, and I grew worried. I walked to the other side of the pod and found our podmate Sir Quis preparing dinner. He told me he hadn't seen Arden for at least a day, but this wasn't unusual as we had stopped all interaction during the waning. I stayed with Chiquise for a little while and accepted some of the stew he prepared, but eventually went back to our large room to wait in hopes that Arden would reappear before long. Only after I got back to our room did I realize all of his belongings had disappeared. His clothes, his holo tablet, his toiletries, his books, his papers, his personal mementos— it was like the room had been sterilized of his presence while I was asleep. I couldn't imagine what might have happened, but it was becoming increasingly clear that he was not merely out on an errand, but gone. Gone from our pod. Gone maybe even from home world, with no intention of returning. I struggled to remember things he'd said to me while I was sick. Had he mentioned leaving? Did he sound distressed or angry or afraid? I couldn't remember. He had asked me to trust him. He must have had a good reason for leaving, I thought. He must be coming home soon. I fell asleep in our big bed and woke up again the next morning and spent much of the day trying to detect any sign of where he might have gone. Sir Quise let me know that a food delivery had arrived, the first one in weeks. I spent a few hours in the common room with him and Cora and our other surviving podmate, breaking down the delivery and putting away food. We put together a chore schedule and planned out shared meals for the week. 
We walked around the pod grounds to see what needed to be done. We saw residents of other pods out in the sunshine doing the same thing. People were shell-shocked but relieved. The waning appeared to be over. Things seemed to be getting back to normal on Homeworld. But Arden, Arden was still missing. A week passed, and then two, and people began to move about on Homeworld again. Resident services sent out a communication telling us we would resume normal working hours. The company issued a formal proclamation that the waning was over and scheduled a day of celebration in the city square to honor the dead and celebrate the survivors. A longer communication appeared later that described the waning as the product of an unanticipated natural viral evolution and further announced that Clinical had successfully developed a vaccine that was now available. Many people got the vaccine. I did not. We began to work again. Travelers were soon passing through and transferring permanently to Homeworld. My pod grew from three to five and finally to its full complement of eight. Public services went back to their regular schedules. Water and food deliveries were again timely. Clinical was communicative and had plenty of time to see even the most minor complaint. Pay increases were implemented and bonuses, a kind of hazard pay, were made to those of us who had survived the waning. I was promoted to section manager. I did the work. I ate the food. I appreciated the money. But I no longer believed anything the company said. Arden was still gone. My podmates, new and old, encouraged me to move back into the pod's main building. It will be better for you if you're close to people, Sir Quise insisted. I smiled at him but shook my head. He looked pained, but he didn't press me. I continued to stay in the room that had been mine and Arden's, separated from the rest of the house by the covered walkway with the picture window out to the garden. Many nights, when I couldn't sleep, I would do what he had done so frequently, and sit in the garden in the dark, looking up at the stars. Did you leave or were you taken? I would ask the stars. Are you alive or dead? Did you do this on your own or did someone make you? And lastly, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? Sir Quise came out to the garden one night and sat down next to me. We have been friends a long time, he said, and I nodded in agreement. Then he quietly added, I love you, and I wish you could be the way you were before the disease. I think you need to leave this place. Your heart won't get better here, and you know deep down that he is not coming back. Do you have any idea what happened to him? I asked. I had asked this question before, less directly. Sir Quise gave the same response as all the other times. We did not see either of you for weeks. We assumed it was the sickness because you stopped sitting in the garden. We were afraid that you were both dead. And then you emerged. Did you know we were actually curing people of the waning? Did you know that we were trying to find a way to prevent it? That the company wasn't trying to stop it and did nothing but stand back and watch people die? I blurted out. Sir Quise looked momentarily startled before gaining control of his features again. Some people died. And some people did not die, he said cautiously. That was just the way of the disease. He placed his hand over mine in what looked like a comforting gesture, but squeezed it hard in a way that was part restraint and part warning. Darling, I realize you're upset. It's hard for you. You were very sick. I looked at Sir Quise closely then and saw the fear written on his face. He knows something, but he can't tell me, and he's afraid. 
I decided to play along for his sake. You're probably right, I responded with a sigh, modulating my voice into a tone I hoped sounded like resignation. We just wanted to help. And some people got better after eating properly, but people didn't, and I was very sick. I'm lucky to be alive. Serquise patted my hand and his face relaxed. Good girl. Got it. You should get some sleep, dear. You're right about that, too, I agreed, and the two of us rose from the bench. Serquise enveloped me in his fragrant, tight hug and whispered into my ear, Look into transfers, Faith. It would do you good to leave Homeworld. And I whispered back, I will. As I crawled into the big bed Arden and I had shared, I thought about what it would mean to seek out a transfer. I had lived my whole life on Homeworld and had never thought I would leave it for anything other than a vacation. I would be moving away from literally everything and everyone I'd ever known. But the truth of it was, I was no longer sure how well I understood anything that happened on this planet. I made up my mind then and there not just to leave Homeworld, but to get as far away from the reach and influence of the company as I could. I began to search for opportunities on independent planets. The more far-flung, the better. Eventually, one in particular seemed tailor-made for me, a call for generalists on a small back-sector world called Iona. I volunteered for the assignment and was quickly selected. My going-away party was spectacular. My podmates, my co-workers from residential services, and others I'd never even seen before came to eat and drink and celebrate the impending start of my new life. Gifts were given, toasts were made, and when the time came to board my flight to the deep space transfer station, no fewer than ten people came along to bid me goodbye. They sang and laughed and continued the party atmosphere all the way to the platform, and when boarding was finally announced, it kicked off another round of hugging and kissing and well-wishing. But at last it was truly time to go. Serquise was the last to approach me. He wrapped his arms around me in a bear hug, and I laid my head on his shoulder, the raw silk of his bright yellow caftan rough against my cheek. He squeezed me tight and whispered in my ear, I slipped a little something into your coat pocket just to remind you of all those who love you. Promise me, though, that you won't open it until you're out of orbit, or you might just decide you can't leave us all behind. I laughed and squeezed him in response. I promise I'll wait, I said. When I pulled back from his embrace, I was surprised to see tears in his eyes. He wiped them away hurriedly and gestured toward the portal. Go, get out of here. You're going to make me ruin my makeup, he said, the tears invading even his voice. There were only eight of us on the 20-seat flyer. I found a seat toward the back and settled in. Soon we were speeding away from Homeworld, and only a few minutes we glided into a bay in the transport hub 650 miles above the surface. The next leg of the journey was longer and more intense. I had been to recreational satellites before, so the flyer was nothing new, but the Class 8 interstellar craft that would take me to Iona's sector was completely unfamiliar. Divided into two sections, I and my fellow travelers started off in the daylight section, seated as if on a standard flyer. As the ship made its way out of homeworld orbit, we were treated to a battery of medical tests and given instructions on how to prepare for long flight protocol. Once past a certain point, we were ushered back to our individual chambers in the long flight section, where we would stay in a sort of twilight sleep for much of the voyage. We would be awakened to eat and stretch whenever the craft came out of hypersonic mode, for a port stop or just to give us a break, then go back to sleep until the next stop. The trip to Iona would take about two weeks. When the time arrived, the attendant led me back to long flight. 
Each cubicle was outfitted with a deeply reclined, high-sided seat that looked almost like an old-fashioned lounger, into which we could be securely strapped. There was also a small bedside table bolted to the floor and a locker for personal belongings. A thin curtain hung in the cubicle doorway, separating it from the ramp leading to the other cubicles on the ring, as well as back to daylight. Everything was lit from below with a soft golden light that emanated from the floor. The attendant placed a cup of water and two pills on a tray on the table. Get yourself settled, she said. You're free to take your sleepers any time in the next half hour, but I'll be back to make sure that you have taken them and to get you strapped in. You don't want to be awake when we go hypersonic, and those sleepers will take about ten minutes to take effect. She disappeared through the curtain. I eyed the sleeper pill suspiciously. I could hear the attendant repeating her spiel along the ring. It sounded like most of my fellow travelers were opting to take their pills immediately. I reached for the cup resolutely, popped them into my mouth, and swallowed them down with a large gulp of water. Still slightly unnerved, I sat on the edge of the recliner and jammed my hands into my pockets anxiously. As I did so, my fingertips in my left hand touched something tucked down into the very bottom. It had to be the promised little something from Serquise. I pulled it out slowly. It was a small paper packet, no more than two inches square, folded around something flat and very tiny. I could already feel the sleepers starting to slow down my thinking, but my curiosity took hold and I laboriously unfolded the paper to find a pile of small black gritty dots rolling around inside. I heard the letters in my head just as he had said them that night. B-A-R-N-A-P-H-T Birmyat Seeds Printed in the center of the paper was the Thanish nursery rhyme Arden had sung to me over and over again while I lay in our bed crushed by the waning. Nothing smaller than these seeds, nothing larger than these stars, nothing brighter than these dreams that always keep you in my heart. Across the bottom of the page, the words, I love you, were written in Arden's hand. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying Nothing Larger Than These Stars. Check back next week for a new episode. Follow and subscribe so you don't miss a thing.